0: When you raise a fund, somebody is giving you power of attorney on their capital until it's fully invested. When you go out to find capital for a deal, an investor is making a decision based on the price and the deal that you've structured, and they're probably negotiating a little bit as well. So when someone gives you discretion, you have to earn their trust.
1: All right. Do you like podcasts? I obviously like podcasts and one that I like a lot is called The Distribution that Juniper Square puts on. It's hosted by my good friend, who's also been a guest on this podcast twice, Brandon Sedloff. Highly recommend checking out the episode they did with their CEO and co-founder, Alex Robinson. They talk a lot about the current state of the business and really just how they're looking at it going forward. They also did a good one with the CEO of uh, BGO, Bentall Green Oak. Sunny Calso, which was fantastic. Juniper Square has meant a lot to Ford Capital. Um, We have been one of their earliest adopters. I think we were one of their first 10 customers. And and really, if you think of how we run our business, it's synonymous with Juniper Square. We use them in every which way we can. They continue to come out with new products uh, that our team devours and adopts. And we really aim at Ford as part of being the best operator in the world. A lot of that is how we deal with investors, how we raise capital, how we treat our investors, how we communicate with them. And a lot of that just happens through Juniper Square. So I've been talking about this company for five years on my podcast for a reason and will continue to. It's just that good. One of my favorite things to do is raise capital. Always been something I love doing. I love putting together deals. But one thing that is always tough for me is putting together the actual pitch deck, which is really important when you're raising capital or whether it's a corporate overview, or a track record deck, or investor reporting collateral, but putting together any kind of deck for guys like me has always just been tough. And so finding a company that could do it, and not only do it, but blow your mind and make some of the best pitch decks you've ever seen was really cool. Enter Better Pitch. Better Pitch has taken the lead and is making some of the best pitch books I've ever seen And if you think that not having a great pitch book is important when either raising capital, showing off your company, showing off your track record, showing off to investors, you're mistaken. I think your pitch book is one of the most important pieces of collateral that you could have. So I highly recommend checking out Better Pitch. They have an incredible team. They will work with you. And if you're a Fort listener, and you tell them that, they will work with you on as many revisions as you need until you're 100% satisfied. So go check them out. This company, not just because of what they do, uh, but two of my best friends run it, Nick Huber and Mitchell Baldridge. It's called Ari Koseg and they have a singular mission, to help real estate investors spend less money on taxes. If you're an investor, a broker, or a property owner, listen up, this is crucial information. A cost segregation study can help you unlock the hidden value in your property by enabling you to write off components of your building faster. This means you'll pay less in taxes and have more cash in your pocket to reinvest or distribute to your investors. The team at RE Costseg are experts in this highly specialized field. They only use engineers to perform their studies and they use the highest industry standards for their reports. Over the past year, they've completed over 600 cost seg studies and have saved their clients more than $65 million in taxes. For smaller properties, they do site visits fully virtually, which makes it extremely fast and easy to get your cost seg completed. They also have an experienced team for larger in-person site visits. Big or small, they make it extremely quick and easy. And the best part? Their initial analysis is absolutely free. They'll examine your property and show you how much you could be saving visit R-E-Coseg, That's RECostseg.com. Right now in America, the real estate capital markets are, uh, they're not what they have been for, let's call it the last 15 years. And I thought that would be a good place to start. You are at the intersection of what's going on in the capital markets. And so I'll, I'll ask it broadly but kind of where do you see things right now? What's going on from your perspective? We can talk debt, equity, asset classes. We can take this wherever you'd like. Sure, well, it's been a tough year
0: for real estate. I mean, you could say we're in a real estate depression. I was a little amused when I was reading my newsfeed this morning and one of the macro pundits said, real estate's the next bubble to burst. And I was like, is that a (laughs) newsflash? Where (laughs) have you been? (laughs) He's talking about commercial real estate, obviously. You know, and I've done this for over 30 years at this point. So I think this is my fourth cycle. It is as deep and as bad as any cycle that I've lived through. Different, obviously, and we can talk about how. It's not just macroeconomic, like the SNL crisis was, like the you know, the tech bubble was even like the GFC, but there are some, some secular changes in the way we're using real estate. Obviously what's happened with office, that's, that's changing it. But the, the biggest thing about real estate from our perspective, which is the inf- perspective of an investor, a long-term investor in, in the asset class, is that so much of it, you know, depends upon where valuations are and appraisals are a really important part of that as well, because there's an embedded enormous portfolio and institutions who broadly started investing in real estate as an asset class in the 1980s, you know, some 40 years later have huge portfolios and they're getting written down very, very slowly. So it's a melting ice cube and it's melting much more slowly than any of the other capital markets. If you look, for example, at the publicly traded REITs, they're down today, you know, they're trading at, at, at an in sort of implied cap rate, and this is obviously broad strokes, of about six percent. They're down, you know, probably twice the level that real estate is down at, you know, in terms of its appraised values. But, you know, so they're down maybe 36%, depending upon what date you want to use. We're down 17, 18% in appraised values, depending upon which metric you're using. But we know that that's probably you know six percent is probably too low an average cap rate because it's still negative leverage, and so we know we are less than halfway there. So it's just a very slow, torturous process to revalue the asset class, and given how quickly interest rates, it's all it's all interest rate driven, right? Obviously, because of you know the Fed's response to trying to control inflation has been to raise interest rates faster than we've seen in two decades. And so as a result, values decline because generally roughly half of real estate, commercial real estate's bought with debt. So the cost of debt's gone up dramatically. The cost of equity has to readjust. And it nobody really has a confidence level yet Maybe the last week or two, people are starting to feel that interest rates have leveled out, and the feds gets no longer going to raise, and that's a little bit of a cause for optimism. But it really depends if we have a soft landing, which you know the Wall Street Journal declared last week, but I don't think anybody's but, uh, fully betting on that yet, except for the equity markets. So when you have an illiquid asset class that that you're going to have to hold for a very long time, it just takes a long time to revalue, and that's that's probably going to go on for another at least another year. And everybody got so used to these rapid cycles and particularly with COVID where people thought, oh my gosh, it's terrible. And we're gonna have a big adjustment. And you know, two months later we were flooded with capital and we did not have that big adjustment. So there's an expectation on the part of many folks in the industry who haven't been around for that long that this would be a short cycle and it's gonna be a lot longer than people think. That's our view. and. The uncertainty is just causing people to, you know, when in doubt, do nothing. And that is a mantra, frankly, of the institutional business. So transactions aren't, things aren't trading. Transaction volume is down probably 80%. And nobody has a real sense of confidence as to where they should trade. So that's why you see, you know, everybody's latest darling is something like Pref Equity, where you can fudge it, right? You know, you're, you're higher in the capital stack. If the values go down, you're still OK. You're getting some current yield. And so everybody wants pref equity today. But that's just a
1: hedge. Oh, man, you said so much there. I
0: know. Sorry. No. I just went
1: on and on. <laughs> I love. No, I love it. I'm going to pick this apart. So first off, when you when you say long cycle versus short cycle, is your definition of long cycle the time it takes to kind of hit bottom and then come back up? Like, what do you, what do you mean by long cycle?
0: When, yes, it's, it's the, the amount of time. If you're, if you're at a value, let's say you buy something for a hundred and then values decline. It's how long it takes for you to recoup your hundred to get back to your cost basis, if you will. One of the things about real estate is it initially was part of institutional portfolios viewed for, for three reasons, right? This is the classic, uh, asset allocation theory, income, diversification, and less volatile than, you know, than equities and other asset classes. So you never want to lose principal with real estate and that's probably the first credo of, you know, any institutional investors, don't lose principal.
1: You said we're less than halfway there. Is are we less than halfway to bottom or what are we less than halfway to?
0: When I said that, I was just look, using as a proxy the number the decline in appraised values for say the Odyssey, which is the open-end Fund index and relative to say Na which is the or NACREEF, which is sorry NaReit, which is the public markets. So the public markets are down twice as much as the private markets in terms of valuation. And you could argue that they're not yet down enough. So, by the way, every time I say all these things, I'm thinking, this this is all true. If you're you know if you're investing in indexes. But most of us don't invest in indexes, right? We buy properties. We buy property types. We buy specific situations. The beauty about real estate is it special sits in people. Okay. Now I'm, I'm so, so I, we should talk about that later where, you know, where, where this is, uh, true and where it's not true. But generally speaking, if we've been at this decline for about a year, a year and a quarter, it's at least another year before we've hit bottom. And then how quickly do we come back? So much of it's a
1: function of what happens to interest rates and what happens to the economy. Again, we don't know what's going to happen an hour from now, but let's say that 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 things are kind of stabilizing and that interest rates really aren't going to go up much further. Do you think this is kind of, I mean, you've kind of alluded to it, like let's just sit and wait and let it keep working its way through the system, maybe for another year before you start seeing a, a pickup in transactions? So... You have to say what's going to cause things to change and what's
0: going to cause things to move is debt coming due and major transaction volume. So I think in past cycles, when we've seen major bank loan sales, that's been, you know, new market makers and, and people use those as metrics. Signature banks, big loan sale is going to come up shortly here. And I think that will be an interesting metric for people. And you'll, you've probably seen a lot of data, which talks about the flood of loans that are coming due. So what's happening today is that groups who took out floating rate loans that are coming due this year, next year, I think next year's a peak year, they're gonna need some what's called gap equity because they bought here, they borrowed here, values have come down, the loan to value won't change, and the interest cost is going to go up. So the coverage is going to go up. So they'll need an equity slug, and either they'll be able to get that through pref equity or mezzanine debt, or the bank will have to take back the assets. The bank really doesn't want to take back assets; they've kind of learned that lesson. But those are the, that those will be the catalysts for things
1: repricing in the market. I think you answered the second question then, which is you know, banks taking back. Do you think this is a cycle where actually not a lot will transact, the transaction will just happen within the capital stack rather than ownership changes? Good question. I don't know the answer to it, really. I think that
0: there are certainly office owners today. That they'll be very happy to just give back the assets because one of the rules I learned it was I remember this uh, early on in my career was the 80 20 rule that when you have an institutional investor and you have a problem, you know, what happens is at the board meetings, 80% of the time is spent dealing with 20% of the assets. And so there will be, and you've seen major important institutional investors hand back the keys on office buildings in particular, where they feel that the value is below the debt today. And they just don't want to spend the time figuring it out because they don't see the upside. So I think it just depends on what it is and where it is, but there's, definitely going to be a flood of, uh, you know, in multifamily and in industrial, you'll see a lot of preferred equity. It's interesting. We have a transaction that we're about to come to market with and the number of people who say they're interested because it's PREF equity is staggering. We'll see how it prices, but PREF equity is probably pricing in the mid-teens today and that's a pretty attractive
1: return to people. That's the flavor of the day on on industrial. Do you see it being on like new development that's that's coming to market, or where do you see prep equity fitting into the industrial side of things? I'm an industrial guy. I got I got to pick I know, your brain here. I know.
0: <laughs> I was going to say it's not on your properties, Chris, but I think that new property I mean, rents have still been going up in industrial, obviously in Class A industrial, and I think even I mean. You you know better than I in Class B industrial, so we're still seeing strong ability, you know, strong rental growth and ability to rent rent these assets up. And so I think probably you don't need the pref equity, a new development. I don't think you'll see as much of this generally speaking in industrial, you know, unless you have somebody who really overlevered a property. You'll see it more. You'll definitely see it in multifamily because multifamily when it was trading at three three and a half caps, and Multifamily debt was plentiful at very low rates. And while relative to other property types, it's still plentiful because of agency debt, it's twice as expensive. So I think, and and also it's such a big asset class and there's so many non-institutional owners of multifamily. I think you'll see a lot more opportunity in the multifamily space.
1: You get to sit at the forefront of people that have ideas to raise funds or JVs, or they have some idea. And I want to go back to office. Have you seen, is anybody trying to raise distressed office funds or have some (laughs) angle on office or even those folks saying like, we just don't want any part of this mess at any price?
0: Yeah. One handful of folks are looking to do something in the office space. And the majority of them are looking to do office to residential conversions so in in the central business districts they're very hard to do they're expensive it's good if you have experience we have seen you know a couple of successful uh, jv raises or club club vehicle raises there and we've seen you know interesting one off transactions i'd say we probably have talked to out of the 2000 investors we cover I'm aware of count them too, that say they want to do office <laughs> as a distress play. I'm sure there will be more, but it's just like like that's 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 a Monday morning conversation. Everybody's going, what? Really? That's so interesting. We are seeing, for example, we have a manager whom we work with who are who's buying office parks in suburban areas that have great locations and Literally moving the tenants from one building to the next as they because or sell off the rest of the parcels for single family rental development because it's zoned for resi. So if you can you know find a multiple use, and he calls it you know taking the melting ice cube. And as the tenants leave, you know you just can kind of move them to one corner of the parcel. That's an interesting play, and you can do that on Levered and make a two x. There are specific strategies, but I think. Look, I'm, I am literally standing in my office watching the most spectacular construction of the JP Morgan building, which is north of, I'm on 41, I think it's 70 something stories. And it's literally when I, I at first, uh, it was a hole in the ground a couple of years ago. I started, I've watched the whole thing go up and it's a beautiful building. Will they fill it up? And will it really be a spectacular kind of fulcrum for the organization? Absolutely. So you know, I think if you're in New York City and you want to be between 42nd Street and 61st Street, you know, within a couple of blocks of Park Avenue, you're paying up for rent right now. Because this is this is the 100% location and it still exists, but there are a lot of mid-block B buildings that are going to go, you know, they're definitely not being able to command
1: much rent you think those are going to go to Resi or th- is, is it just going to trade at land value and we're just going to see a lot of stuff start coming down in New- as it relates to New York specific?
0: Well, I, I think it's location specific. So you saw in the last cycle, a lot of Wall Street older office buildings convert to Resi. So a lot of people now live in the financial district in these converted buildings and they love it. And some of them are crazy expensive. Personally, it's not my cup of tea but i think it if you're in the right location it absolutely can be successful i mean in new york you know you have some cavernous buildings on 6th avenue i think would be very hard to convert you have some smaller buildings on 3rd avenue you could probably convert some of them but there's look it's it's the you know the doom cycle that, you know everybody talks about so you have you know people stop coming to the office and then you have people move out of the city and you have lower Tax revenues, and so then you have homeless issues, and then the government comes in and raises taxes to try to increase the services, and more people move out. So it's this kind of doom loop that we've seen in many of the cities, not Dallas, and you know not in the South as as much. But we have got to figure out how to fight that. I'm a I'm a born and bred New Yorker, so I will never ever ever bet against the city. We'll be, we'll, it'll be fine. We'll be back. But, you know, I mean, I grew up on Avenue C and 21st Street. It's a little bit of a, you know, wasteland today. But for sure, where Chelsea Pierce is, was much more of a wasteland. And, you know, like that's where you went to do things you really weren't supposed to do. And if you look at the West Side today, like it's mind blowing how beautiful it is. So things, this, you know, things will cycle.
1: You said that like, so basically capitals like sitting on the sideline right now is, are the institutional capital, there's family offices, there are, uh, there's sovereign wealth. Are any of those buckets maybe moving uh, more than others or is pretty much everybody kind of silent right now?
0: Well, one of the many things I love about our role in the real estate business is there's always something to do. And so we've actually been pretty busy working in niche sectors some of which are you know offshoots of the industrial space and been quite successful in them this even raising capital for them this year so and we've raised capital from pretty much every category of investor so it's not that people are doing nothing they're they're I'd say institutional investors if on average the big public pension plans let's say invested you know on a scale of a 100 last year to this year they're probably at 35 percent. So they just scaled back their allocation because they were over allocated. There was, as a result of portfolio, the, the equity markets had come down. Obviously, the fixed, mar- fixed income portfolio value had come way down and their real estate portfolio hadn't been revalued as quickly. With the equity markets coming back, there's hope that the portfolio allocations will increase next year. And I think they will to some extent. So we won't be at 35%, but we'll be at something high. We won't be at 100, but we'll be somewhere in between. So, public pension funds are still investing, but at a lower rate. Endowments and foundations are still investing. Some of the sovereigns are very active and some are very quiet. Interesting. Got a little bit of a dichotomy there. We've seen more capital or more interest from the Middle East this year than probably we've seen in many years. And obviously, oil prices coming back and diversification and what's happened in Saudi Arabia, all those things are contributing factors. And we continue to see money coming here from Asia, slowly, but coming maybe less so from Europe or Latin America at the moment.
1: What do institutional investors care about as it relates to, in contrast to like private investors, like family offices, they care more about allocation and portfolio construct. Like, Are there key differences in how institutional investors look at the world as opposed to an ultra high net worth or a family office or a sovereign that aren't necessarily deal related, but more like allocation related. They want exposure to things.
0: And again, you know, in the category of all generalizations are false. Generally speaking, if you're a CIO of of a large public pension plan, you're managing to a target return. Maybe that that's 7%. And so you're looking at the diversification within your portfolio to manage that over a longer period of time. And, um, and you have a consultant that's giving you sort of an allocation mix and you, you manage your real estate to hit that target. And that's really important. And it's interesting because if you look at many of the studies that have been done about return, most of the differential in return is not by manager but by property type or region. So if you get that broadly right, you are going to outperform indexes. I mean, as as an example, if you look at where the Odyssey one-year index traded right now, it traded down around numbers, 10%, but industrial is only down 7% and office is down about 20%. So if you were just been in office, you'd be down 20. If you were just an industrial, you're down seven. That's a nice, yeah, that's a big difference. So you want to get the property types right. And when you look at differentials of managers, the ones that have gotten that right tend to be able to raise more capital over time. And they're really not necessarily institutional investors, like large institutional investors. They don't. They get paid not to make big mistakes. They don't get paid to outperform. That is distinctly different than Someone managing a foundation or certainly managing a family office where foundations typically have a much higher hurdle rate for real estate. So they're looking at it often to compete with private equity, which means a 20% return and a 2x, which is super hard to do, as you know, in real estate. And in family offices may have a lot of real estate that's not even in their investment portfolio So, if they're looking for it at all, they're looking for outperformance typically because they feel they have the diversification of homes. Or even though you can argue that that's not going to perform the same way, they're not necessarily looking to real estate to generate a certain type of return. So, when we when we talk to foundations, endowments, family offices, we're typically offering them much higher return opportunities, and some of those groups are much more focused on multiple because they really don't want to have to keep, you, know, you can't eat IRR, right? So so they're really looking for a two or two and a half X and, they'd, and they also want the tax, you know, there's di- a big obvious, an obvious difference is whether you're taxable or tax exempt. So if you're a taxable investor, every time you sell an asset and you pay your tax and you reinvest, you're worse off than if you had just held it for a long period of time and the power of compounding allowed you to grow your, your equity multiple even higher. So, taxable investors tend to like a longer hold period
1: when something that would be more tax efficient. Okay. So if, if a deal was producing, let's just call it a 20 over five, or we believed that it might, that just naturally, I'm not saying it wouldn't be a fit for institutional, but since they're, they're, they're probably looking to take less risk and lower return, you wouldn't even, would you show that deal to an institution or that immediately goes to family offices and, and endowments based on the risk profile? Oh, we would show it for sure. Um, I mean, look, it depends what it is. If if it's a development
0: deal of an environmentally tainted site and you're buying the land and then you're going for a cleanup, we know an institutional investor is not going to do that. But if it's just, you know, a distressed debt play, sure.
1: I'm assuming the development cycle is going to be a lot longer than call it the normal cycle, meaning the first money in will probably be acquiring existing assets at discounts as it takes longer for ground up deals to kind of pencil. Is that what you're thinking? Are you talking? Sorry, are you
0: talking about in this cycle? Mm-hmm. or just
1: generally speaking it just seems like de- like the development valuations are getting everything to work with construction cost up interest rates price of land is so upside down right now that money into new development might take a little bit longer than maybe money into the first assets that start trading does that make sense
0: well it does conceptually but i'm thinking about two development projects or two development strategies that we're working on that make More sense today than they did a year ago, for sure. They make more sense today because land values are down. I mean, you can probably buy the land for 20 or 25 cents on the dollar of what you could have bought at, you know, a year or two ago. So even if land is only 15% of your cost, that's material. And then inflation's mitigated. So we're hearing from folks who are, you know, in the construction business. Materials prices are certainly not going up the same way they were. And even if they, they've stayed a little bit higher because there's no development going on, labor costs are way down so that contractors just want to keep their teams employed. So you can find, you can, you can get a guaranteed max price contract with the labor at a way cheaper rate because there's not a lot of work to go around supply demand. So, so we're seeing some really interesting and particularly in sectors that need development. So build to rent is a really interesting sector that we're seeing a lot of activity in. I think 14,000 build to rent homes were delivered last year compared to like a million and a half single family homes. There's just not a lot of scaled purpose-built build to rent and people want it. So will it be able to continue to, there was an article actually in the paper today about how rental prices have stayed high on homes. Will you still be able to rent those that are yield on cost? that makes new development make sense? I think so. So again, it depends what you're doing. But, you know, unless you're JP Morgan and you've planned this for a very long time, is anyone building a new office building today? Probably not.
1: Are any unique structures kind of showing themselves as people are raising right now, like raising in ways that you haven't seen before? Is it all pretty much still down the middle of the fairway typical raises? That's a great question.
0: I mean, the the concepts du jour, if you will, are disintermediating the GP. So many, many investors now want to own a piece of the general partner so that they share in the fees and the promote. And they're willing to take more, uh, more risk in funding some operating expenses or going in and buying out an older partner and buying into an operating company. So we're seeing more of that activity and interest. And then the the other you know big, we've talked about PREF equity, but the, the other thing that you'll see a lot of is secondary trading. We haven't seen a lot of secondary trades happen yet, again, because of valuation, but we're starting to, we're working on a couple and once values are more known, I think we'll see more secondary trades. And then GP-led recaps will become I think something that's much more accepted in the business. So we've done a few of them. I think you'll see a lot more. And what that is, is when you have an operator or general partner or an investment manager who controls a fund and some of those assets and the fund is coming to its end of its useful life, or it's running out of capital, there's a need to bring in new investors and more capital. And as part of that, you may offer to buy out the, do a tender and offer to buy out existing investors, more often than not, you'll take the pool of assets and put them in a new structure and recapitalize that structure with a longer tail life so that whatever the value add proposition was, there'll be time to do it and capital to do it. And we've done, we're, we're we're very focused on that business. That's a big part of what we're seeing right now. And I think that will be more and more interesting to investors as well
1: okay i'm just going to ask a dumb question why is that called a gp led recap meaning a bunch of assets gp doesn't necessarily want to sell them wants to keep working on them or holding them they come to you as the gp and they lead a an opportunity to recap and i'm assuming they've already told their lps prior to engaging with you or some firm that hey we're going to go recap this and lps have given the thumbs up assuming that valuation is intact or everybody can agree on valuation
0: there are a lot of steps to making this happen and obviously there are fairness opinions and there's there's a lot of things that you need to do to make sure that as a fiduciary if you're the gp you've you've done the right thing by your existing investors so that's a whole other conversation. But it's a GP-led recap, as opposed to an LP-led recap, because the GP is making the decision for the investors that they want to recapitalize that portfolio or those and those assets. Whereas if an investor says, I had this conversation the other day, you know, we just took over this portfolio. There's a bunch of assets, a bunch of fund investments in here. It's not really what we want to do. They'll just put those on the market as a secondary. So in that case, somebody comes into the LP position, no no incremental controls, nothing to do with, you know, which assets get to stay in or stay out. Basically, you're just replacing one LP in, limited partner for another with the same subscription documents, the same partnership agreements, the same structure. And it's just a question of just trade at net asset value or it's some discount or premium to that net asset value.
1: Why is that in vogue right now more than in other times? Why is that like the flavor of the day right now? The GP-led
0: recaps are
1: because so many investments,
0: portfolios are either have been financed with floating rate debt. And so they, when the debt comes up, they are going to need more capital and they didn't plan properly for it, but the assets, there's no transaction volume. So if you want to sell an asset today, you are probably going to have to take a haircut to what you really feel the value is just because people are nervous to buy anything. So it's a bad time to sell. You may be better off getting, you know, recapitalizing it and maybe with pref equity, or with Mezzanine or just with new investors. And the existing investors may feel like, well, I don't want to sell at that price. I'm happy to stay in and let this manager continue to, uh, to do what I hired them to do in the first place. So it's largely a function of debt and also lack of transaction volume.
1: Going real back real quick on LPs wanting a piece of the GP. How should GPs be thinking about this? And let's say they're going out to raise money and through that process, and, I, and we're going to talk about first-time funds in a bit, it, I would it would be not good of me to have this conversation with you publicly, knowing that I'm I'm probably in one of those camps. But before we go there, if I said, what work would a GP do or what should they know about if they meet an LP and the LP says, great, I love your deal, I actually want to own a piece of you too like what kind of matters as to one, how that LP or that investor is going to value the GP and, and what should the GP maybe have done or pre-work that they should have thought about before they get asked that question?
0: Well, the number one issue is what controls are you willing to give up? So are you just looking for capital and you want to keep everything as it is? You know, maybe if you sell a 10% interest, you can do that. But if you're looking for... To buy out a partner or you need a lot of capital. It's what, it, it's what level of control this investor would have in your business. And then who is the investor? How do they operate? Are the people that you're sitting across the table from likely to be there in two years? Cause you know, you're going to be there in two years. What's their board process? Do they have allergies? Like you asked the question a while ago about the difference between institutional investors and say high net worth, you know, headline risk. Some institutional investors have a real issue with respect to headline risk, and others don't. So you know, are you compatible in all those different ways? And it's really hard to have a checklist. I've been doing this a long time. like you just kind of sit down and you just you know you'll know, or you hopefully will know. you won't always know you'll i I've actually you know look, it's like life, you learn by making mistakes. And the things that you you know you thought you the things that you thought were gonna happen didn't happen the next time you'll make different mistakes so it is it is a very hard thing though because if you're just selling an asset or you're selling a portfolio, you know so it's an asset it's a portfolio it's very reproducible selling a piece of your business is super hard and it's not just the valuation it's really about you know that's your livelihood, it's your culture all those things are so challenging. The reason that most people ultimately will make this trade is because that investor is gonna bring what we would call limited partner capital to them or LP capital. So there are lots and lots of folks who could come in and buy X percentage of your operating company, but how many of them can give you a half a billion dollars to invest as well? And that's when we tend to see investors, operators being willing to make that trade. Because they grow your business at a level that you wouldn't be able to grow it or it would take you so much longer to grow it on your own.
1: And when they make those investments, are they usually, let's say, you know, first engagement, they're buying a a piece of the operating company. And I, I know this is just a very generalized question and the answer is it's deal by deal. But are they usually looking to take like a smaller piece of the GP with some contract that they can continue to buy more and grow? or a small piece with a way to get out of it over time? Like, how are those usually structured? Is it, I'm assuming it's not just this good faith, like we're here forever. There's usually maybe some mechanism one way or the other. Well, it depends when and why you did the deal. If you do the deal initially
0: to get started, so let's say you sell a a 20% interest in the business and they're going to give you $100 million to seed each of your next three funds. So that you know that once this business is up and running, You will want, now you'll have assets, you'll want the ability to buy that investor back and they may well be willing to do that. So you probably have some kind of a buy-sell mechanism at some point in time, either based on your AUM or based on time or based on the number of funds that you've raised, something like that. If you're doing it to buy out a partner and it's not clear, you know, you don't clearly have a timeline, you may just you know be willing to do it you'll always have some kind of a buy sell mechanism but it may not be as time constricted so you know there's a f- probably five or six large firms that do this all day long i mean that's they raise capital to do this and when they raise capital they typically raise it in a private equity format so if you're in you're if you're investing in a fund that goes and buys gp stakes that's like a 7 year fund so whoever that group is doing a deal with knows that in seven years they're going to be sold again, and you see a lot now we've lived through probably two or three cycles of that, and it's you know if you're if you're in that position, you know, come talk to us because it's interesting to see what people learn over time. you know it's it's extremely if we are if we Park Madison Partners as a placement firm are approached by a group that has just sold an interest in their business or a majority interest in their business, it's very hard for us to raise LP capital around that because investors are like, I wanna see how this settles. I wanna see who stays and goes. I wanna see what happens to compensation. I wanna see who's really making the decision. One of the things about our business that I just love, but is really hard and it's taken years to learn is our job is not just to find the best, Product and managers, but to figure out how decisions are made in the firm, and that's like seeing through the spaces, right? And you, you, you know, it's Warren Buffett. You never, when the tide goes out, you learn he's not wearing a bathing suit. So he said it differently, but you, 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 the point being that
1: you see swimming naked.
0: Yes, that's true, but but the point being that you really you have to see in the spaces of how decisions are made. And it's really hard to figure out when you're just sitting on the other side of the table as an investor. And when there's a change of control, or even when there's a new investor, that's somewhat disruptive to that process. And investors want to watch it settle before they make a commitment. Because once you're invested in these funds, you know, you're locked up for five or 10 years, you know, and all you have, as one of our investors said, is whining power. So... You can't really vote with your feet, unlike the public markets.
1: The reason why you would do it is A, you want, you need more capital to grow your business. And B, maybe they're bringing something to the table, whether it's connections or insights or something that is a value add to the company. Is there any other reasons that aren't coming to mind of why selling a piece of the GP matters? Or is it usually to open up capital opportunities? and to maybe add a different strategy or insights or network that didn't exist before.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's generally it. I mean again, you might need capital to buy out a partner, but but that's those are the reasons.
1: And as and the way it's valued, they do they value any of the existing promote that might exist in the existing portfolio? Or like, how do they come to valuation on this? Is it a multiple of EBITDA at the operating company plus promotes or what's generally the formula?
0: Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. And obviously, this is cyclical. But, you know, at the top of the last cycle, when valuations were quite lofty, and, you know, Chris, you'll live to see this again, it's a multiple of EBITDA. So it's your fee income. And typically, new buyers have allowed the partners to keep the promotes from the existing funds in full. So they're essentially buying the future. And so that's, if, if especially if you've had good success, it's pretty darn attractive.
1: I hope to live to see another market top. That was fun. I have no <laughs> doubt you will, Chris. <laughs> You'll be here before you know it. All right. So there's a lot of folks, and I'll put myself in this category, but I know a lot of people right now. Uh, We've syndicated for 18 years, and there's a lot of people going into this next cycle that are thinking, man, having pre-committed capital, maybe raising our first fund, doesn't really matter the structure, but going into this, thinking we're going to change our business model. You guys have done over 14 first-time funds. And so I wanted to just spend a little time maybe some wisdom that you would share on if this is a route you're wanting to take here might be some things to think about uh, when doing this. I think there's a lot of people that'll get value from this.
0: I know when, whenever anybody asks me for wisdom, I feel extremely humble. <laughs> I th- Look, I think the biggest considerations when you think about raising funds versus going deal by deal or portfolio by portfolio is the cross. And so now you're crossing all your deals and you're crossing all your promotes and it totally changes the the timing arc of how you get paid. So if you are raising a fund, it might take a year to raise it. It might take, you'll have a two to three year investment period and you'll probably have a five to eight year holding period. So, and then you only you're in a promote after you've returned all the capital plus a pref. So realistically, even in a super hot market, you're five years in, and you could be longer than that. And by crossing your promotes, you know, <laughs> it was a, I had a real privilege last year of of going to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And I mean, I just sat there and I just tried to soak up some of the unbelievable wisdom and uh, you know, scribbling different notes and things. And Warren Buffett made the comment, which I really didn't appreciate. Although our, my son who, who came with me said, you know, mom, you said that before. But yeah, you know, what do I know? He said, he's the beneficiary of having made one really good decision every five years. You can think about Apple stock, right? Has been like a great performer for them. And I thought to myself, if I did that, I would have been out of business so long ago because as a placement firm, and I think as an investment management firm in the real estate business, you have to be in the business of hitting singles and doubles. And every so often you'll hit a triple or a homer, and that's great. That'll be your outperformer, but you can't afford donuts or fly balls. And it just if you think about having a fund and having your promotes all be crossed and you lose the capital on one deal, you know, you've just worked for three years for no promote. So that's the, that's the bargain, if you will, of having discretionary capital. But it's really important as a firm to have a process where you feel comfortable that your process will allow the full team to to be in consensus on making these investment decisions cause you get one, you know, you get a pop out and then you really are in trouble for a long time. So what, you'll, what you're will what you going to see, and then sometimes the market just like this shift, nobody, very few people, some, I'm sure some people will look back a few years from now and say, oh, I predicted the rise in rates and I was so smart, but people didn't really predict this and at least not this fast. And so what you'll see as a result of just this incredible transition in values is there'll be probably as big a morphing of the investment management business. So many mid-sized firms will lose their talented bench because people will go out and start new new businesses. It's a great opportunity to start investing de novo, to be able to go out without a legacy portfolio. We talked about the 80-20 rule and to they've lost their promotes. So there's really no reason to stick around. You're sticking around for salary and bonus, which is not why many talented people in this industry, they wanna be on the equity side of the of the, the balance sheet. So you'll see a lot of new firms start, whether they end up becoming large investment management firms or more just operators doing interesting deals. And so we have you know, all these other structures that aren't funds that we work with now, whether they're JVs or development platforms or co-investment vehicles. But if you're a manager, If you're an operator, there's a lot of other ways to raise capital that can be more programmatic than just a fund structure where you can have some more flexibility on the crosses.
1: One of those would be like a GP style fund where you don't actually have to cross everything. Correct? I mean, I I don't even know if you I guess that's a type of fund, but it's a totally different characteristic where the main. Well, you would cross in the GP fund, but you wouldn't cross. When, once you've
0: once you've taken down a deal with the GP fund and then you go out to raise the equity, you, that, that investor can be bespoke because they've chosen that invest, investment and they don't cross.
1: I think you hit on a really key part there, which was lack of incentives to want to keep working on a fund or deals because the upside's not out there. Do y'all work on anything where an existing fund manager might come to you and say, we got to restructure these documents or this fund to motivate our staff to want to keep working on this or does the fund usually just play out people leave and you know you hire more people to fight another day
0: so so groups come to us all the time and ask us that and then our job is to say because our our job as a placement firm is we're the bridge we're representing the, the we're hired by the manager but we're representing the investors and the reason we're successful in what we do is because investors know us and trust us. And, and that is front and center of every decision that we make. So we're looking at this fund and saying, okay, look this app, we, we were working on something like this not long ago. They are out of the promote, but they have done a good job. COVID wasn't kind. And as a result, would like to restructure the fund Allow investors who want to exit to exit at the current pricing, and then find new investors to come in at a value where there will be some new promote to keep the team together. And that's that's the premise. So yes, that can work. You need to have true faith that the manager is the right manager for that portfolio. And you probably need to offer existing investors the choice to exit if they want to exit.
1: Real quick on finishing kind of the fund discussion if you've ra- if you're raising your 10th fund you're probably being looked at differently than if you're raising your first just in going through the last year it's it's like okay even though we've syndicated hundreds of millions of dollars the narrative's always like but this is your first fund Why is it that sometimes a track record of different ways of raising money doesn't necessarily always translate to you're ready for a fund? Like, why is that? Why does there seem to be this bridge that always has to, this gap that always has to be bridged? One word discretion.
0: When you raise a fund, somebody is giving you power of attorney on their capital until it's fully invested. When you go out to find capital for a deal, an investor is making a decision based on the price and the deal that you have structured, and they're probably negotiating a little bit as well. So, when someone gives you discretion, you have to earn their trust, and therein lies the difference.
1: I learned something new today. For s- s- that, that's uh, that I will not forget that. That was drilled home. You, talk, you talked about other structures. <laughs>
0: you make me sound like a school mom. No. Oh,
1: my gosh. <laughs> Look, maybe, maybe I have heard it in meetings and it didn't really register, but that, for some reason, uh, that registered. I will not forget that. I'm a one-word kind of guy. The fewer words, the more simple that we say them, the easier it is for me to understand. You talked about also just JVs, development platforms, separate accounts. Again, I'll use myself as an example. If you've been doing things one way forever and you've just been heads down and you're not necessarily privy to all the different platforms, is it through working with y'all or how should somebody think of this is the way we should raise money? Like what puts you in certain buckets as opposed to raising a fund? Why would one bucket be more beneficiary than the other?
0: If you want to be in the fund management business, You have to decide that you also want to be in the client service business. Fund management means you're a fiduciary to your clients, and you need to reorganize your staff to be responsive to those clients for reporting, for answering their questions quickly. Probably as a senior person at the firm, you need to make yourself available to those clients. So you've really changed you've added a second group of of people you have to report to, whereas, and, and that are critical to the business in the same way that your tenants are critical to your business. And so if you think of yourself more as a real estate operator, then you would just want to find the cheapest source of capital at any given point in time. And capital is fungible. So, You have the flexibility to operate your business that way because your job is to maximize the operating return from your real estate. That's a different business. Someone who's a good fund manager should have both characteristics. They have to be a great operator or allocator, depending upon what their strategy is, and they have to be a great fiduciary.
1: This isn't a loaded question. This is an honest question. Why would somebody want to be a fund manager?
0: Discretionary capital.
1: But you couldn't get discretionary if it was a JV or a separate account? Like none of those come with discretion. Those are always deal by deal.
0: Sometimes you can have discretion in a box, but if you have discretion in a box, then you, you're effectively, a you are a fiduciary as well. So you could. there are different structures. You could have a programmatic JV, which is discretion in a box, meaning if the asset fits these you know, size type parameters then you can go and do it just have to inform your your investor but you don't need their explicit permission but you are acting in a fiduciary capacity to them and you probably will be crossing promotes then
1: is there a size or just something like a characteristic that maybe early on in your career being more of an operator that's taking on JV capital or you know different structures make sense but then maybe something's going on in your business where it's clear that you would make a move to more of a fund business? Or is that just total preference on the future of your company has nothing to do with size or scale?
0: It's a great question. And I think for me personally, as I look at my career path, I just knew a lot more fund managers. I didn't tend to know some of these large operators who found capital in different ways. But the truth is businesses have grown in both ways it's really about access to capital you can be a great operator build your portfolio in a variety of different ways and then take it public now you're you're managing a public company you could do and if you look at the regional malls and a lot of the multifamily groups they did that and that's that's always an option obviously with a different outcome i think it's really about having the desire to be a fiduciary to investors and having those long-term trusted relationships. And that's when we, we often will have groups come in. I mean, we looked at 148 funds this year, looking for a placement agent. Some of them were first time, some of them were existing managers. We did one. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's, It's a host of reasons. Obviously, it's a challenging year to raise capital. So today, in order to raise capital, you have to have a strategy that's really unique in a fund strategy because there's enough existing managers who've had the wind at their back for the last 15 years, perform super well. So they're going to get re-ups from their existing clients and finding new investors is super hard. But if you have a unique strategy that investors don't have in their portfolio, then they will find a new manager to do that. And they're, you know, they're, they tend to be, you know, more niche strategies, sort of on the outskirts of office retail and multi. So we've done those. I'd say technology and data centers is an infrastructure, definitely something that's coming into investor portfolios that hasn't been there before. Those are new managers. But if you're just if you're an operator looking to do a capital transaction you know, our ratio of operators who've come to us and transactions that we've are actively pursuing or working on is probably 10%. So it's a much lower bar to do
1: a capital transaction. And if you're raising a fund and those initial investors are coming into fund one, I'm assuming their intent is if we're willing to go into fund one, we're hoping to be investors in fund two, fund three, fund four. Do they even think that far out or is it let's just get in fund one, see how it does, and then we'll talk again when fund two comes around. Are they really thinking about that allocation as something they could be making over multiple funds?
0: Yeah, most investors are really understaffed and they want to make a decision that will last for, you know, 10 or 15 years. So they absolutely want to invest with the manager long-term. Plus it's, you know, it's awfully challenging to cover, you know, many, many managers in your portfolio. Whereas when you have repeat funds with the same manager, it's just, you have one client conference to go to, one person to talk to, it's much easier. So that's always the goal. We have some investors who, when they make the commitment to the first fund, tell us and they mentally allocate to the second fund because you probably won't have enough realizations or any realizations from fund one before you have to go to fund two. So they think about it as a two fund commitment. That's, That's pretty smart. I like that thinking. And we think about it as a two fund commitment by the way. So we, when we work with a manager, we won't work with managers if we think it's, generally speaking, we won't do it, something that's just a one and done. I mean, we did that in PPIP, Public Private Investment Partnership, because it was a moment in time and that was a special situation. But generally speaking of the 14 first time funds that we've done, we've almost always done the second and third funds.
1: How many folks think they want to become maybe what we'll call a fun business where they're making, you know, a series of funds and then they kind of do their first one and they're like, this isn't for us. Or by the end of fund one, have you kind of, bit, the culture has changed, the structure that what people are doing has changed to where it only makes sense to raise that next fund. Assuming performance is there, do people often get through fund one and try and do something different or that usually sets the course for the business going forward?
0: Yeah, not voluntarily. If fund was if fund one is a success, almost always there's a fund two and on. If fund one is a disaster, then that's not such a good thing. But you wouldn't. Generally speaking, it's a little bit. It's a little bit like having a child, right? You know, it's you have created something. Those long term relationships and the fund will last for so long, right? Even if you decide you have to make that decision about fund two when you've invested the capital and the infrastructure to manage fund one is now in place. If you don't have a fund two, you can't leverage that infrastructure. It doesn't make any
1: sense. All right, Nancy, that's a great place to bring it home. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Fort Podcasts. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.